Tonight's lecture is a homegrown one in the sense that it's being given by a member of the historical group committee, Dr. Ron Smith, who has done a lot of work in recent years on writing the history of the British aircraft manufacturing industry and is in the middle of producing a series of very nice books on this, which we'll say a word about afterwards, but they are available, and there are a couple of ones here that people can flick through if they want to do so afterwards. So Ron is very well fitted, I think, to um, tell us something about how the industry got going and uh, how it developed. Um, Ron is a, an aeronautical engineer. Um, he's also an aircraft owner and a, a private pilot. His career includes 15 years at Westland Helicopters and 12 years at BAE, uh, BAE Systems as it now is, and where he is at present called Prospects Director, BAE Systems Ventures. Anyway, Ron is a member of the group committee, uh, as I've said, and he's previously been chairman of the Rotorcraft Committee, and indeed he's served as a member of the Society Council. Um, I've mentioned the books that he's, uh, he's done. Uh, some of you will know, so for now let's listen with great interest, I'm sure, to Dr. Ron Smith. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I uh, hope you can hear me okay. And thank you uh, for the introduction. It's a privilege to present a lecture to the Society in the uh, main theatre. Though I've, I've been here before chairing conferences, this is the first occasion on which I've actually had the privilege of lecturing to you. I have to begin with a caveat. Effectively, the small print, and I apologise that it is actually small print, uh, all the opinions expressed in this lecture are my own and should not be taken to be those of BAE Systems, my employer. So I'm going to speak about the evolution of the British aircraft industry, a pretty daunting uh, subject, and um, I'd just like to give you an indication of how I'm going to approach that topic. When one starts to look at the development of the industry, there are some fairly clear and natural breakpoints in terms of the phases of its evolution. And so we go from initial experimentation to very rapid expansion during the First World War, which I think is perhaps not as well known as it should be, and I should be saying quite a bit about that. Uh, then the difficult interwar years with the uh, collapse of requirements for aircraft after the First World War. Rearmament and production for the Second World War, the immediate post-war years up into the formation of uh, the British Aircraft Corporation and Hawker Siddeley, which was a major rationalisation in the industry. And then finally, the modern times, which I take here as being British Aerospace and beyond. In terms of emphasis, 
the lecture will focus more on the early period than the later period. And the reason for that is that the early period was a subject of very intense activity. It was very formative in terms of the overall structure of the industry. And uh, I think it's also less familiar than the more recent past and the events of the present day. So I shall, as one does, begin at the beginning, pioneering. Now, the period before the First World War was really marked by rapid and exciting developments once, it, once flying became possible. So we have the Wright brothers flying, of course, in 1903, flying in Europe with Santos Dumont, and then by 1908, Farman, Voisin, uh, Blériot, and the Wrights were flying at Le Mans. So practical aeroplanes were uh, flying and had been demonstrated in Europe by 1908. So the time was really ripe for aviation to begin in Britain, and fairly rapidly we had... Um, Cody flying at Farnborough, and then uh, A.V. Rowe and J.T.C. Moore Brabazon in 1909. And over the next few years, over the next five years or so, pretty much every configuration of aeroplane that you could imagine flew during this very, very rapid uh, expansion of the uh, industry. I think we should recognize that there were tremendous problems to solve at this time. In order to create a successful flying machine, one clearly has to have propulsion, a structural design that is adequate, the ability to control the design, uh, the means of control and adequate stability to make that feasible. And then, of course, like any new venture, you need the time, energy, money, and sometimes just the sheer luck for it all to work out. And I think the thing which renders this particularly challenging is that any problem in any one of these areas for a particular project could kill it stone dead. So I think there's quite a few things which fell by the wayside, which, which perhaps didn't really deserve to. And there's an element of fortune in that which proved ultimately to be successful. And learning to fly and to create these machines was not at all easy. There was the simple factor of learning that one should operate into wind. Um, plenty of comments in the early days around there was no lift in the air, probably because of uh, either inadequate power or simply operating downwind. Seatbelts. It's very, very surprising how long it took before people realized such a fundamental safety feature as tying yourself into an aeroplane. Uh, as late as April 1914, Sergeant Dean was killed simply falling off his machine while attempting to carry out a uh, spiral glide. And then there's the question of uh, arriving at some reasonably stable and stable understanding of what constituted a successful configuration. Um, in 1913, flight talking about the use of ailerons on the Eastbourne. Uh, monoplane was positively sniffy. Although this is a departure from what has now become almost standard practice as regards monoplanes, which was wing wolfing, it is a system that works quite well in machines of the biplane type. So clearly uh, the aileron, which has uh, been with us ever since, was not widely regarded as being the most likely to be successful um, by 
you know, well-established uh, opinion of the day. One should also reflect that as more people learned to fly, this was an immature industry, and some of the pioneers indeed paid the ultimate price. 48 British pilots and students were killed from when, in July 1911, C.S. Rolls was killed up until the outbreak of the uh, First World War. And that's one in 16 of all the pilots that had uh, obtained Royal Aero Club certificates up to that time. So that's a little bit about the backdrop and, and the, early, the early challenges that faced the pioneers. And I want to say a few words about the early stages of the industry and the locations in which the pioneers were flying. And I'm starting with the Isle of Sheppey, where early in 1909, the Short brothers negotiated a license to build six Wright biplanes. And they set up a factory at Laysdown on the Isle of Sheppey. They flew from a fairly rough flying field nearby at Shell Beach, and they lived next to the factory at Muscle Manor. This was the first aircraft factory in Britain, and by August 1909, it had 80 employees, which is quite a significant enterprise. The site on the Isle of Sheppey became the focus of flying by the Aero Club, which became the Royal Aero Club in 1910. And also in 1910, the entire operation moved from Shell Beach to East Church, and from late 1913 onwards, there was a progressive move by Shorts to Rochester, which was more convenient for London, it was more convenient for float plane operations, and over a period, flying at the Isle of Sheppey ceased. But in terms of aircraft manufacturing in Britain, undoubtedly an important location. Closer to London, there were two other major centres that had sprung up, Brooklands and Hendon. Now, Brooklands, if not the birthplace of British aviation, is to some extent its cradle, and I'd like to just run through a, a list of people that were flying at Brooklands. I just picked an arbitrary date and, and had a look in flight to see who was operating. 1911, I think. H.J.D. Astley, A.V. Rowe, Eardley Billing, Robert Blackburn, the British and Colonial Company Flying School, Coventry Ordnance Works, Howard Flanders, the Handy Page School, briefly, uh, Hewlett and Blondo, Humber, Martin and Handerside, Hammond, Lane, Neal, Parsons, Pashley, Sopwith, Spencer, Star Monoplane, Vickers Limited, Walton and Edwards, Howard Wright, and so on. Now that's a veritable who's who of pioneer aviation in Britain. The photographs here show a very well-known photograph of uh, P.O.M. Sopwith sat on his uh, Howard Wright biplane. To the right, we have two Vickers monoplanes. These were built and flown at Joyce Green in Kent before being moved to Brooklands for use by the Vickers School. And Vickers subsequently set up their factory at Brooklands during the First World War. At the bottom right here is the Avro Type D, 
of April 1911, and Avro advertised throughout the First World War that they were the pioneer of the tractor biplane. Although initial success for AB Row had come with triplanes. And on the left here is the Eardley Billing, or later known as Percival Biplane. And this flew in May 1911, so it flew one month after the Avro machine. Uh, it's very workmanlike, it's very similar in configuration. And the Avro machine, if you like, is part of the heritage of a company that survives today in uh, BAE Systems. And the other machine disappeared without trace. So perhaps one conclude that not all the dice were loaded in favour of that machine because in, in reality there's, there's little to choose between them from a technical uh, viewpoint. So Brooklyn's developed a long-standing role beyond the pioneering phase in aircraft manufacture and uh, in addition to the well-known Sopwith and Hawker activity and the Vickers, Vickers Armstrong BAC British Aerospace activity uh, it was also important for both Martinside and Blerio and Spad during the First World War. So Brooklyn's is, a, is really a major, major site. Hendon is a site that's more to do with both flying schools but also the popularisation of aviation. It was the London Aerodrome, set up by Graham White in October 1910, and used for his factory and flying school. And uh, here we see the factory and hangar, which have now been splendidly refurbished and incorporated into the RAF Museum. Weekly flying meetings were held, which did a great deal to publicise aviation in this country. And uh, the site was also used for test flying by the aircraft company, uh, the Aircraft Company Limited, not a very familiar name, but later became the Aircraft Manufacturing Company Limited and later on became de Havilland Aircraft Company Limited. Other companies that uh, are manufacturers that made use of Hendon include uh, WH Ewan, who became the British Codron Company, Handy Page Limited and Newport and General Aircraft Limited. The site was very active with flying schools, and there'll be a little bit more about this later in the context of the First World War. And the schools are here represented by a Beatty Wright biplane and advertisements for both uh, the Blerio school at Hendon and the British Dapodusan, who describe themselves as the largest, best equipped, and best managed school in the kingdom. Another location that's perhaps less well-known but was also important is Lark Hill on Salisbury Plain. 2,284 acres of land available and um, was used extensively by the British and Colonial Aeroplane Company Limited, uh, later to become known as Bristol. And that company was set up in February 1910 and had flying schools at both Lark Hill and Brooklands. And these schools were far and away the most important training establishments in England before the First World War. 309 of the 664 pilots who achieved Royal Aero Club certificates before the First World War were trained in the Bristol and Colonial Aeroplane Company schools. 
The site was also used for test flying, and uh, the Bristol box kite made its first flight here in July 1910, and Lark Hill was used by the British and Colonial Company from June 1910 until May 1914. And I think, again, rather like the 80 personnel employed on the Isle of Sheppey by uh, Shorts, it's worth noting that uh, more than 100 British and colonial aeroplanes were built in 1911, so almost as soon as the company came into existence. It was, it was actually advertising that it could supply three aircraft per week. The uh, aeroplane sheds at Lark Hill feature prominently in the advertisements of the company and you can see them here in this 1912 photograph and I'd like to draw attention to the fact that they're still there today. Um, that was a photograph taken in 1997 and they are some of the earliest surviving purpose-built aeronautical structures in Britain. I'd just like to skim through a few other early locations and I think the theme here comes out quite strongly as uh, lakes, beaches and fields. Windermere uh, was used by the Lakes Flying Company, later known as Northern Aircraft Company Limited. Uh, nice descriptions there. Eight mile straight flights without obstruction. Uh, Portholme, the largest meadow in England, was used by James Radley and later by the Portholme Aerodrome Company Limited. Camber Sands, two miles by one mile, used by Alec Ogilvy and Howard Wright. Uh, I quite like the description of uh, flying, flying rights over several miles of hard, smooth beach, very broad, probably the best flying ground in England, 40 square miles of sand. Filey Sands was used as an early flying centre by uh, Robert Blackburn, and the uh, quotation here comes from an advertisement at the time when he was uh, moving to centre his activity uh, in Leeds. So the aeroplane shed is for sale with a, with a uh, concrete slipway and uh, access to a three-mile stretch of fine beach and an ideal bay for hydroplane flights. And then in Ireland you had uh, Harry Ferguson using McGilligan Strand and William Ellis Williams, Professor of Electrical Engineering in the University of Wales, I believe, using Red Wolf Bay on Anglesey. So lakes and beaches were very, very important. And I should mention, obviously, the other major centres, including Shoreham, which was important as a, a location for flying schools and also for seaplanes, and, of course, Farnborough, with the associations with Cody, and then subsequently the Balloon Factory, the Army Aircraft Factory, and the Royal Aircraft Factory. So hopefully that gives an indication that there was significant and widespread activity before the First World War. And in terms of the formation of the industry, I think that what is important is that many, many of the key players, both in terms of companies and individuals, were in fact already active prior to the First World War. And in addition to those listed here, one could also uh, include, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Aircraft Company Limited, later Airco, and then became the de Havilland Aircraft Company. 
Henry Folland, who was active at the Royal Aircraft Factory from 1912, George Carter, later of Gloucester, uh, Roy Fedden and uh, Frank Holford, J.D. North, later of uh, Bolton Paul, Noel Pemberton Billing, whose company later became Supermarines, and uh, John Lancaster Parker, who was a famous freelance test pilot who later became test pilot for Shorts. All of these individuals and companies were very active prior to the outbreak of the First World War. So as we move towards wartime, it's worth contemplating the uses of the aeroplane in war. And the first use, undoubtedly, was reconnaissance. And that is very much underpinned by the quotation there, the main object of fighting in, th in the air is to enable photographic reconnaissance to be carried out and at the same time to prevent that of the enemy. So as soon as you started doing something militarily useful, in this case reconnaissance, your enemy became interested in stopping you. So fighters were a natural follow-on, the natural response to successful reconnaissance is you have to get rid of the reconnaissance aircraft, so we need fighters. Bombing operations followed shortly thereafter, initially pretty tactical, bombing against troop concentrations, trench strafing, operations against um, enemy airfields. And later on, there was strategic bombing as well. Anti-submarine patrols were, were very important. The submarine blockade was a, was a really key factor and, and did drive uh, a substantial amount of industry focus on both seaplanes and flying boats during the First World War. We also got night fighting in terms of operation against airships and indeed night bombers. And uh, all of this had to be supported by enough pilots to do the job. Now, the list of roles that one sees there are, in fact, pretty much the roles that the modern Air Force carries out, with the exception that, at this stage, military transports, air-to-air -air refueling, and search and rescue were not on the scene. But most of the roles that one would recognize in a modern Air Force actually existed quite early. But the technology was still relatively new, and it was wartime. So there, were, there was actually a heavy price in terms of attrition and losses. Now this is an interesting quotation. The average life of an aeroplane at the battlefront, not more than two months, during which time it will require two engines. So the suggestion here made in 1917 was that it would be necessary in order to keep 5,000 aircraft flying to build 30,000 aircraft a year and 60,000 engines. And I think what is interesting and perhaps not so well known is that that is exactly what was done in 1918. So within 10 years of the first aircraft flying in Britain, we had an industry that was building 30,000 aircraft and 60,000 engines a year. Not all of the losses were at the front. And in fact, this is also a very salutary uh, statistic. In 1917, more men were lost at the training schools than were lost on all fronts. And uh, in fact, 
Losses in every month of 1918 were equal to the entire strength of the RFC at the beginning of the war. So in this context, perhaps one can understand that, uh, as in the Second World War, training was very important, the supply of pilots was very important. And uh, what I, I found curious when I was doing some of this research was that the civilian training schools running completely independently of the government continued in existence until August 1916 and they were very busily advertising for trade and they were using um, almost knocking copy advertising between the whole flying school, the Beatty School of Flying and also the Ruffy School. These three schools were actually all operating at Hendon and Beatty had... Uh, four of these right biplanes and six Codron machines and they advertised that they had two distinct types and as a result the training we give is more thorough and comprehensive than can be obtained elsewhere. Of course the Hall Flying School said well tractor biplanes are what we have and uh, we have tractor biplanes fitted throughout with standard controls which is clearly intended to uh, knock the fact that Beatty was still flying um, right biplanes with pusher propellers and wing warping. So I've, I've indicated that production numbers increased very substantially during the First World War. And uh, here is some data given from uh, official sources, parliamentary paper published in 1919. In four years the aircraft establishment of the flying services increased more than 80-fold and the production rate increased more than 50-fold. The 1918 production rate, which is quoted there for 10 months, is an annualised rate of something like 32,000 aircraft a year. And in fact, in 1917, Winston Churchill, as Minister of Munitions, said, we are now building more aircraft in a single week than we built in all of 1914, more aircraft in a single month than we built in all of 1915, and more aircraft in a single quarter than we built in all of 1916. So I think that is graphically illustrated by the figures here in terms of the accelerated rate of production. And obviously, all of this was achieved within 10 years of the first aircraft flying in Britain, and it required a big expansion of the industrial base in order to uh, produce the aircraft. And everybody who could do it was contracted. There is hardly a motor car, motor car accessory or woodworking firm that was not fully occupied with work at the time of the armistice. And here are just some examples. The car industry, Daimler, Woolsey, Standard Motors, so Birmingham and Coventry, plus Manegerton, nowadays known as a car distributor, but uh, they were manufacturing aircraft in the First World War. The furniture manufacturers, Waring and Gillow, very, very famous and well-known, justifiably for their quality furniture. William Lawrence and Company, who were a large furniture manufacturer in Nottingham. And the Highgate Aircraft Company, the sort of firm that has really disappeared from, from the memory, who were upholsterers. Coach builders, Hooper and Company, well, they are Royal Warrant coach builders, and uh, at the same time, one can mention the Regent Carriage Company Limited with this rather charming advert. Uh, 
they say telegrams, car bodies, London. Car bodies, obviously, are also part of the coach builders. In Scotland, in particular, there was a production group based on the shipbuilders. Uh, so G&J Weir, William Denny, Fairfood Engineering, Napier and Miller, Barclay Curl and Company, and Alexander Stephen were all building aircraft during the First World War. And then, of course, there are contractors at a slightly lower level in the industry. Bath Aircraft Limited, manufacturers of planes, propellers, struts, fuselages, etc. Highest possible quality guaranteed. So a very large industrial base was brought to bear on the problem of delivering sufficient number of aircraft. And I can illustrate that by a selection of companies from central and eastern England. Now, all of the companies on this list were contractors during the First World War, although Bolton and Paul subsequently built aircraft in their own right. Clayton and Shuttleworth, Rust and Proctor, and Bolton and Paul, between them, built 3,800 Sopwith camels. That's more than seven times the total built by Sopwith themselves. You can see here the heavy involvement of the motor industry that I mentioned earlier. And um, in terms of the contribution, there's 15 companies on this list, and they, they built around one-third of all the aircraft built in Britain during the First World War. 17,500 aircraft or more in total, and every one of those companies built more than 500 aircraft. And they're really companies that I would suggest are not particularly familiar in the psyche in terms of aircraft manufacturing. Let's just have a look at some of the main types that were actually being built. Just a few photographs of aircraft production here. SE5A under construction at Wolsey Motors. Designed by the Royal Aircraft Factory who built around 250 of the 5,000 total that were built. And there were five contractors in addition to the Royal Aircraft Factory who originated the design. This is uh, DH9 production at G&J Weir in Scotland. No less than 10 different contractors building DH9s. Sop with one and a half strutters at Westland. One of eight companies building the type. And a factory familiar to some of us that have walked through it at times when Kingston was uh, part of British Aerospace at the time building Sopwith Snipes. Again, eight different companies building that type. And here I've just listed the main types that went out for production across the industry. And it is worth noting, trainers were very important. Also, I hinted earlier, float planes and flying boats. The short 184 was built by ten different companies. So, the contraction or the contracting of aircraft production across the whole of the available industry was really the major feature during the First World War. And because of the rate at which production built up, there was a similar acceleration of consumption of resources. And uh, I'll just read a little extract from the centre of that. It says, More spruce is required than the present annual output of the United States 
more mahogany than Honduras can supply, and Honduras is accustomed to supply the requirements of the world. There's mention made there also of the amount of linen required. The, um, the armistice came rather suddenly when all this production rate had been building up, and uh, we were left with some large surpluses, and in fact, the amount of linen that was available was staggering. 42 million yards of surplus linen. That's enough to go around the entire world. Uh, widths up to six feet wide. Uh, and the whole lot was bought by one man, Mr. J.L. Martin, an Australian. He paid four million pounds in 1919. Now, I have no idea what he did with, with the linen, but that's a staggering Staggering set of statistics in its own right. So that's pretty, pretty uh, surprising stuff, really. So to revert to the theme of the industry, in um, 1916, 40 companies, which I've listed here, came together to form the SBAC, Society of British Aircraft Companies, as it was then. They were almost as soon as the SBAC had been founded, one or two of the names that are missing from this list, which include Armstrong Whitworth, British and Colonial, and uh, the Gloucestershire Aircraft Company Limited, and Ferry. Ferry joined the SBAC, and it really became the industrial base, the, the body that, that uh, uh, formalized the existence of, of an aeronautical industry in this country. The list is unfamiliar, to uh, modern eyes, although some of these contractors, some of these companies were involved as contractors during the Second World War. Austin Motors, Standard Motors and Brush, for example. And a number of these companies, and you can see here Blackburn, for example, A.V. Rowe, um, Sopwith, who became Hawker, Westland, and Vickers, who went into BAC and then into um, into British Aerospace, Coventry Ordnance Works went into English Electric and via them into British into BAC. So some of these companies did have a future beyond the First World War, but very many of them, Darak Motor Engineering, for example, and the Dudbridge Iron Works Limited, have just gone in terms of uh, the folk memory of the uh, of the British aircraft industry. So in, in mid-war, very, very active scene, huge amounts of production, fantastic acceleration of, product, of, of numbers, and then suddenly the armistice, it all stopped. Now this produced a major collapse in the fortunes of the companies. It had a devastating impact on the, on the, uh, on the industry. The contractors, uh, the car body manufacturers and so on, all returned to their original trades. Uh, but a number of the actual aircraft companies either closed or were liquidated and then reformed under another identity. So, as I've said before, they became de Havilland, Sopwith became Hawker, British and Colonial became uh, the Bristol Aeroplane Company. 25,000 aircraft were on order at the time of the armistice, and the main the main thrust of the activities of the ministry post that were to try to see how many of those how many of those orders they could actually avoid having to accept aircraft from. 
90% drop in RAF manpower in, in 15 months. So 90% drop. Civil aircraft, well, there were 240 in 1920, but by 1922 it was down below 100. So there were some real challenges. Excess profit duty was important. The fact that there were so many aircraft that were simply surplus was a m major problem for the industry. And uh, I'd like to focus a little bit more on the Aircraft Disposal Company. It was formed in March 1920, and it basically took a major problem off the government's hands, which was to take responsibility for the storage and insurance of all these surplus machines, and then to try to find customers for the machines, in exchange for which, having purchased the surplus, entire surplus stock for a million pounds, they offered to pay back actually half of the profit to the government. They were required to pay back half of the profit on any sales to the government. But they took into surplus store 10,000 aircraft of nearly every type that was operating with the RAF, 35,000 engines. And uh, they, did, um, they did generously offer a rebate for any companies that bought back aircraft they had originally supplied. Um, and they also, uh, they also say in their opening press announcement when the company was created, the presence of these stocks means that the industry has to face a period when little manufacturing will be required. And that was no less than the truth. Um, some idea of their stock can be found from this advertisement, £100 million worth of stock awaits your inquiries. Long list of aircraft, long list of engines, magnetos, plugs, instruments, accumulators, ball bearings, etc. Some of their other advertisements of the period said things like, the greater part of this stock is absolutely new and has never been used. So this was... Uh, a challenging environment for the industry. And the companies that survived mostly had a good go at diversifying. Um, many of them looked for work building car and bus bodies. There were a few unusual items, you know, grey and white furniture, barges and electric canoes, uh, milk churns and pianos. And in the case of Sopwith, the ABC motorcycle, the best of its kind. So, people struggled. They did their very best to stay in business and to maintain employment. And uh, when there were contracts to be had, there was intense competition. Now, it wasn't a totally bleak scene because some companies managed lengthy production runs. So, Westland, who Westland's developed the Wapiti and the Wallace. Hawkers had the Hart, the Demon, the Audax, that, that large family of uh, splendid silver biplanes. Fairy had the Fairy 3 series. But generally, whenever a contract requirement was, uh, specification was issued, the industry would leap into action to offer prototypes. And this example is a requirement for the replacement of the Fairy flycatcher no less than 11 different aircraft were built of 10 different types. So they were designed, built, flown, tested, offered up for 
for evaluation. And the majority of those were entirely constructed on a private venture basis. So this was an absolute nightmare generating all these types of aircraft, many of which, this is the winner of the competition, the Nimrod, but many of these others simply disappeared without trace after a relatively short period of flying. And this was a hard time for survival in the industry. Schultz built only 36 aircraft between 1920 and 1930. Schultz built, built 36 aircraft in those 10 years. Gloucester built 26 aircraft between 1930 and 1934. So with all these difficulties, it's perhaps not surprising that a first phase of industrial restructuring took place from 1928. And quite a bit happened. Um, Vickers Limited acquired the Supermarine Aviation Works in 1928, and that eventually led to the creation of well, Vickers Aviation Limited, which became in due course Vickers Armstrong's Limited. Also in 1928, John Sidley acquired control of A.V. Rowe and Company Limited. Uh, A.V. Rowe, in the meantime, took an interest in S.E. Saunders to set up Saunders Row. And A.V. Rowe joined with Sir W.G. Armstrong Whitworth Aircraft Limited under Armstrong Sidley Development Company. So that was the 1928 activity. In 1934, Hawker Aircraft Limited purchased Gloucester Aircraft. And in 1935, Hawker Sidley Aircraft Company Limited was formed, taking 100% of the Armstrong Sidley shares, 50% of the Hawker Aircraft shares, and they actually bought the rest of those shares the following year. However, these companies, Avro, Armstrong, Whitworth, Gloucester, Hawker, continued to trade under their original names. So externally, essentially, they looked like uh, separate companies. But there was cooperation across the group so that Gloucester was used in the Second World War to supplement production capacity for Hawker, building the Hurricane Henley and Typhoon before the meteor appeared on the scene. Similarly, Armstrong Whitworth Aircraft Limited provided extra production capacity for the Lancaster and also the Lincoln. And then later on, uh, again, Armstrong Whitworth Aircraft was used to uh, produce other aircraft from the group, so particularly the Hawker Seahawk and the Gloucester Meteor, the Hawker Hunter and the Gloucester Javelin. So... This was the first phase of rationalisation, 1928 and then 1935. So we can see that the, the industry was responding to some of its challenges. And most of what I've talked about so far has been in relation to military aviation. During the 1930s, however, we saw some new growth, particularly in the private aircraft sector. <laughs> And the various um, limb competitions that were held after the uh, First World War in the 1920s hadn't really been successful in producing uh, a, a production volume light aircraft. But then the appearance of the DH-60 Moth and associated with that the Cirrus engine and then the Gypsy engine really allowed practical light aircraft to appear. 
and then in the moth transformed the scene. By 1930, 60% of all private aircraft in Britain were DH-60 moths. The success of the moth and the development stamp, this is a uh, puss moth, really established the fact there was a viable private aircraft market in Britain and suddenly lots of other companies came on the scene and some of these companies subsequently were very important to our effort in the Second World War so, uh, and continued post-war. So Airspeed, Miles, Percival and Taylorcraft, which later became Oster Aircraft, all continued through the Second World War and producing aircraft post-war. I've included this aircraft, it's a Tipsy B, um, not just because it's a suitably obscure example, but also I'm pleased to say that this aircraft was my aircraft, owned by myself and successfully restored to flying condition. So I'm quite pleased to be able to show that. So that's the, the general scene as we approach war clouds in Europe and expansion. The critical decisions associated with rearmament were made from 1934 onwards when Chamberlain, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, authorised expansion of the Metropolitan Air Force from 52 to 84 squadrons, aiming for something like 1,250 aircraft in service by 1939. Successively, this program was accelerated, so year on year the targets became tougher. Plan C set an annual production target of 1,900 aircraft, although something like 900 were actually built in, in 1935. Scheme F was aiming to build 8,000 aircraft in the three years to 1939. More and more industrial effort was required. The Shadow Factory scheme came along there was an initial focus on, on building engines and then light day bombers. And it's arguable that some of these aircraft were not that effective when it came to wartime. But what it did do was to create the production base such that large-scale manufacture could take place. And when the right aircraft were available, that proved invaluable. And uh, I'd like to say Sebastian Ritchie's excellent book, Industry and Air Power, provides a comprehensive study of this effort for anyone that is more interested in it. It wasn't all plain sailing. There were difficulties achieving the required expansion. And uh, I've extracted this list from a single source. Um, it says that really we weren't ready to expand, didn't recognise the need to build 25,000 aircraft a year, um, in fact, 26,000 aircraft were built in 1944. Um, and some of the other comments also have some merit. Criticised the range and payload capability of the bombers. Concern over the, uh, the late availability of the Spitfire and Hurricane. Um, certainly, there's relatively late introduction in the UK of stress skin, retractable undercarriage monoplanes with variable pitch propellers and effective flap systems. What I would like to point out about these criticisms, however, is that they are at least not the product of 2020 hindsight. This was an essay published in October 1938. And whilst there might have been 
some political motivations behind some of the points, there was at least you know, some voices there that could see what was really needed. So how was the effort actually made up in the Second World War? Well, we had the main design firms, and um, really this is part of a layered uh, industrial effort with contribution from several distinct groups, and I'm just going to go through each of them. The main design companies all really stemmed from activity in the First World War or, or before the First World War. And these are the companies whose names will be familiar to anybody with a passing knowledge of the history of British aircraft manufacture. Then there were the companies that were the product of the expansion years, the shadow factories and the dispersed capability. Here we see the car industry, Austin Morris Roots Standard. We also see uh, companies like English Electric re-entering production and uh, a number of other companies being contracted. And uh, this is, uh, that's a bow fighter in sorry times. This is a picture of Spitfire production at Castle Bromwich. Then we get the smaller companies, and um, actually, to be fair to them, General Aircraft Limited should also appear on this list. Um, now, these companies mainly built second-line types and also carried out extensive repair activity, but they did also they were also contracted to build some first-line types. So we, the Mosquito, for example, was built by uh, both Airspeed and Percival. Cunliffe Owen were a Seafire manufacturer. The Firefly was also built by General Aircraft Limited. The Airspeed Oxford, built in large numbers and used to train many of the pilots required. I think it's quite important here to notice that many of those companies that entered the industry to build light aircraft were playing a very active part in this part of the, of the effort. And then there was a combination of the civilian repair organisation and, of course, the RAF maintenance units who were returning damaged aircraft to service. And this, at its peak of activity, something like 500 aircraft per month were being returned to service. And this photograph shows a Typhoon aircraft under repair in 1944 at uh, Marshall of Cambridge. And one thing that perhaps distinguished the Second World War effort from that in the First World War was the degree of standardisation. Now, some of that represented the greater technical maturity of the industry. It was actually less easy for the balance of power to shift by the introduction of a new design on either side, although undoubtedly that, that apple cart would have been upset if the Germans had been successful in introducing jet aircraft earlier or in greater numbers than was actually achieved. Now this uh, photograph shows uh, obviously the Spitfire, Hurricane, Lancaster and Mosquito, all Merlin-powered um, some 50,000 aircraft of these four types were built during the war out of a total of 125,000 operational types. So clearly standardization was successful in increasing production efficiency and was also pretty essential for what became a, a geographically dispersed industry and supply chain. 
And I've just got some examples, as I had for the First World War, of Second World War production uh, in progress. So these are, this is a Sunderland at Rochester, one of 749 uh, Sunderlands built there. This gives some idea of the uh, volume of production passing through Austin Motors in Birmingham. And that is some of 620 Sterling bombers that were built there. These are Halifax noses of the uh, London Aircraft Production Group at Aldenham, who were responsible for 710 aircraft. And then there are a couple of photographs of women in the workforce, uh, mosquito fuselages at Leavesden, and another very nice propaganda photograph, London Aircraft Production Group, Halifax, also at Leavesden. So, coming out of the war, well, it wasn't quite as bad as after the First World War. On the civil side, however, Britain suffered from the fact that during the war, the Americans built transport aircraft. We concentrated on operational types. So, whereas the Americans had built the C-47, which became the DC-3 Dakota, C-54, which became the DC-4 and led on to the DC-6 and DC-7, and the C-69 Constellation, we really were coming out of the war with some converted bombers, the Halton, the Stirling 5, the York, and the Lancastrian. The Brabazon Committee laid plans, and, um, and then various new types appeared, but we had converted bombers and we had flying boats, the Hythe, the Sandringham and the Solent. And then as the new types appeared on the scene, we saw the Tudor, the Brabazon, the Princess, the Marathon, the Ambassador and the Hermes. Now, unfortunately, they all either had limited success or failed. The Bristol Freighter, the Vickers Viking and the Dove were successful. And our leading gas turbine engines, which should have placed us at the forefront, certainly produced the Viscount, which was an outstanding success. But the long gestation of the Britannia and the structural failures suffered by the Comet really handed victory in this sector to America and ultimately the Boeing 707. <coughs> On the military side we could produce outstanding aircraft. The, um, during the Cold War, the periods immediately after the war, we produced the Canberra, then the Victor the Vulcan, the Valiant, and the Hunter. Now, the thing that's very striking to me is that all these types were flown for the first time within a three-and-a-half-year period from May 1949 to December 1952, with the English electric P1 flying in 1954. Fantastic productivity. Um, these were extraordinarily successful designs, but even more extraordinary in my mind is that how the post-war economy managed to put all three V-bombers and the Hunter and the Swift simultaneously into production and into service. This was really not a sustainable position. One problem that the industry faced was that all these companies were building 
if you pick any class of aircraft, trainers, naval aircraft, fighters, civil transports, you'll find five or more companies engaged in construction of competitive types. It may not all have been precisely competitive, but as a class of aircraft, we had a multiplicity of production capability and design capability. And in the longer term, this is a, really an unsustainable position, and change was inevitable and was really presaged by the Duncan Sands white paper of um, April 1957, which was born of the Cold War and also following the failure of Suez. And it put the focus firmly on nuclear deterrence and missile defence. So it um, famously stated that the good progress made towards the replacement of the manned aircraft of fighter command with a ground-to-air missile system means that the RAF are unlikely to have a requirement for fighter aircraft of types more advanced than the supersonic P-1, and work on such types will stop. So as a result, a number of programs were cancelled. We had the SR-177 and the Hawker P-1121 fighters, and also the Avro 730, which was a supersonic bomber project. Now, it's interesting that despite this having been obviously the policy of the day, the current RAF website describes this as this infamous paper. <laughs> the white paper also really um, said, we, we really can only afford to run a limited number of projects, and those projects have to be absolutely fundamentally required. They have to be critical. And inevitably, this was going to mean restructuring and contraction in the industry. Now, at this point, and perhaps entirely predictably, we'll mention TSR2. Um, it originated from a 1956 requirement to uh, replace the Canberra. The project survived Duncan Sands, but it was also used as an instrument to create restructuring in the industry, leading to the formation of the uh, British Aircraft Corporation. Of course, its subsequent cancellation together with the cancellation, this was in April 1965 it was cancelled, uh, together with the cancellation of the P-1154 and the HS-681 was really a body blow to the industry and led to a period of great uncertainty. And this, this in my mind, is a period of politicisation. Lots of decisions were being made in Whitehall and some of those decisions didn't really bear successful fruit, so the order for Skybolt, the on and off order for F-111s, and then the eventual decision to um, order an expensively anglicised version of the F-4 Phantom all sort of came out of this period. But one thing that is interesting is that after TSR2, BAC made a decisive move towards collaborative projects, and that set a trend that continues today. So I'm just going to come back to Hawker Siddeley and BAC. And what I've got on this slide are the companies themselves, Bristol, Vickers, English Electric and Hunting, went into BAC and the products. And similarly, this was the old group of Hawker Siddeley, so that was Hawker, Gloucester, Avro, Armstrong, Whitworth, and then joined by de Havilland, Folland and Blackburn and General Aircraft. So we have a range of types from those two groupings and 
the later products of BAC, we find, well, Concord, Anglo-French, and then the Jaguar and Tornado. So collaboration has appeared. Hawker Siddeley had a more uh, mixed range of products, civil and military, but they made a significant decision to remain in Airbus after the withdrawal of government funding. So that's really the BAC Hawker Siddeley component. And they continued developing this portfolio until nationalisation took place in the form of British Aerospace. So by the time British Aerospace came on the scene, the, the products that were then in production were effectively Jaguar and Tornado, Harrier 125, 146 Hawk and Airbus. And with the formation of, um, of British Aerospace came Scottish Aviation being rolled into the overall picture with the Jetstream, which had come from Handley Page Limited, and the Bulldog, which had come from Beagle Aircraft. So um, British Aerospace themselves then went on to develop regional turboprops in the form of the Jetstream 41 and the ATP. They developed the 146 into the RJ and the short-lived RJX. And of course the major ongoing military programs, Eurofighter and JSF, and uh, Nimrod. The company also collaborated with McDonnell Douglas, now Boeing, on the T-45 Goshawk and the Harrier 2 and 2 Plus, and obviously with Lockheed Martin involved here and then the Italian, um, German and Spanish industry and Eurofighter, we have a pretty um, uh, collaborative scene. <laughs> So I now just want to quickly talk about rotorcraft and general aviation before I draw some conclusions. Well, immediately after the war, helicopters came on the scene. Westlands were building uh, Sikorsky products under license, the S-51, the S-55 Whirlwind, and the S-58 re-engined as the Wessex. The... Um, Bristol Company under Raoul Hafner produced the Sycamore and the Belvedere. Saunders Row, which had the Sierva legacy, had the Skeeter, the P531, which later became the Wasp and Scout. And Ferry had the Ultralight, the Gyrodyne, and the Rotodyne. After 1960, when all of the rotorcraft industry came under Westlands in much the same way that the aircraft industry rationalised at that time, um, all of these those companies came under the control of Westlands, and that is to an extent re represented here by a picture of Westland Scouts, where the design originated with Saunders Row, being manufactured in the ex-Ferry factory at Hayes under the control of Westlands. Uh, Westlands continued with a Sikorsky collaboration with a long production run, a highly successful run of the Sea King, and also then came, came into the collaboration business with the Anglo-French program with the Puma, the Gazelle and the Lynx. And then the company had a go at its own developments with the Westland 30, continued and continues with Lynx development and production, and joined with Augusta to produce the H101 Merlin, and, that, and are also involved in assembly of the WAH-64 Apache. The company was purchased by GKN in 1994 to become GKN Westland Helicopters, 
and uh, is now metamorphosed into Augusta Westland. On the general aviation side, uh, post-war the major player was Oster Aircraft Limited, particularly after the early failure of Mars aircraft that um, went into liquidation shortly after the war. We tend to forget how successful um, Oster aircraft were. Perhaps it's, again, no surprise. I have to own up to flying them, so I have a certain interest in the type. Um, they built 3,600 military and civil light aircraft, and many of the military aircraft subsequently were adopted for civil use. And here we can see autocrats literally sort of stacked up waiting for delivery. Um, Oster was taken into... Uh, Beagle Aircraft when that was set up where the PUP and the Beagle 206 promised uh, great things but in the event 152 Beagle PUP out of about 400 that were ordered were actually completed before the company collapsed. This middle row is a kind of tribute to the unfulfilled hopes of the ARV Super 2 and then the Holloway or Trago Mills SAH-1 also known as the FLS Sprint and the Optica and for real success one has to look at the Islander and the Europa a thousand kits of the Europa have been sold and uh, although Britain Norman has had its fair amount of uh, financial fluctuations the type is still in production and we should also add to this I think the success reflected by the Slingsby T67 Firefly and the CFM Shadow and Streak Shadow, where again 400 plus aircraft have been built. But general aviation in Britain has proven to be a fairly rocky road. Here's a quick list of other notable events. Um, so we can see here uh, shorts purchased by Bombardier. BAE, a lot of this relates to BAE related things. Um, the uh, sale of corporate jets to Raytheon, the cessation of production of turboprops, uh, formation of Airbus Integrated Company, formation of Augusta Westlands, and then Concorde withdrawn from service, RJRJX programme cancelled, last aircraft delivered 26th of November. Now the common features here is, yes, there's a growing importance of international collaboration and international combines, and also in here we've got something of the impact of what I suppose we must call the post-9-11 world. So from 1990 onwards, we've seen BAE, stroke BAE systems, exit from executive jets, turboprops, and regional aircraft. The Hawk remains the only all-British product in production at BAE systems. Now on the next slide, and I apologise for this being an eye test, I just attempt to pull together some of these threads into the heritage of BAE systems, or, or British Aerospace more correctly. There's two groups here. This is the Hawker Siddeley Group. This is the British Aircraft Corporation Group, and these are the companies that effectively ended up coming into British Aerospace via Scottish Aviation taking Beagle and the remains of the Handy Page Jetstream production. Um, in here are some of the pioneers, A.B. Rowe, Sopwith, for example. You've got Blackburn, the aircraft manufacturing company which became de Havilland. Um, on the uh, 
BAC side, you have uh, you have Vickers with Supermarine, Pemberton Billing, then Supermarine, going to Vickers Aviation, then Vickers Armstrongs. Uh, Br British and Colonial Aeroplane Company becoming Bristol, going into BAC. These companies which formed the English, went into the aviation interest of the English Electric Company, also into BAC. So the one thing that perhaps one should point out is if you count up all the companies here, you get something like 50 going into BAE, which is a, a massive contraction. So what of the future? Well, prediction's dangerous. I think the stages of uh, the story I've just told reflect early evolution and the creation of the technology in early configurations, expansion and the creation of an industrial base, particularly in the First World War, the re-expansion of that industrial base in the Second World War, and then the hard reality of economics leading to successive rationalisation into BAC and Hawker Siddeley and then British Aerospace. The other very much prominent trend in recent years is the growth of collaboration that's gone along with this. And in my view, the future is really globalisation because the aircraft that we currently produce will be and are in service for 35 years or more. Very, very common. And yet, new projects come along every 15 years or so. Now, it's, it's very, very difficult to maintain skills and production capacity between projects without accessing multiple markets. And really, the trend is that you need to be on every aerospace project that goes into production. And in fact, companies like ours and Lockheed Martin and so on have to be in non-aerospace defense markets as well. One simply cannot create and maintain an aerospace industry based on the current dynamics of the marketplace, solely relying on those sorts of timescales, 35 years of product in service, 15 years between projects. Have we a British industry? Well, there's foreign involvement in much of the industry, and that is no more than one would expect, given the dynamics that I've just outlined. The SBAC itself, Society of British Aerospace Companies, on its own website, describes its member companies as existing across the sectors and across the globe. So clearly, we are really in a global industry. And uh, that's really my conclusion, that, that from now on, in fact, already, what we effectively have are British contributions to a global industrial complex. Now, that's really the end of my presentation, but I do have to give some acknowledgements. I need to acknowledge my employer, BAE Systems, for permission to give the lecture. Tempest Publishing uh, for help in providing the electronic images used and BAE Systems in particular, Ken Ellis, Westlands, Brooklyn's Museum Trust, the Handy Page Association, Marshall Aerospace and the Medway branch of the RAES among those others listed for providing some of the uh, photographs which I've used in illustrating this lecture. And that takes me to questions. <coughs> Thank you very much, Ron. I'm sure 
everybody will agree with me when I say that I think that was a, an absolutely masterly survey. It covered the whole scene wonderfully well, and it gave us a, a very good perspective indeed on what has happened. Um, the figures, of course, for production were absolutely mind-boggling, and uh, it's fascinating to try to toy with what that meant um, at all sorts of levels in the industry and in government as well, of course, because it all had to be organized and funded um, and, of course, then absorbed into use and maintained tremendous efforts, a huge expansion in the peak periods. Well, there it is. Who would like to open up on this? Questions or comments, of course. Uh, yes. Uh, sorry, there is a, a, a roving microphone, which we'd be glad if you use, because we are recording all this for, for posterity. <laughs> uh, can you hear me okay? Yes. Yes. Uh, speaking as a pilot from RAF days to 21 years in uh, civil aviation, I've kept a beady eye on, in the way this war, armaments and people that, such as yourselves experience. It seems to be that, like so many things in democracy, you can never, ever get people to agree. And therefore, when you read comments like Miles, George, and his brother, the way that governments have reacted at times, and the sayings of the de Havilland's, telling the Havilland's to go away and try and build pieces of aircraft, and more or less complete refusing to look at the mosquito plans, that it comes down to we have only ourselves to blame. And it's that if you cannot compromise in life and see the writing on the wall, I mean, I was shattered to see the Airbus get into production. And even in England at that time, when we were going around scraping the barrel, we couldn't, as it were, kowtow to the people on the continent because we knew it all. And we finish up with getting a wing contract. So we only have ourselves to blame. That's all, I think. Well, well I... I believe that the com companies have to operate in the environment they find themselves in. And uh, it is a fact of life that the companies are not owed a living by anybody. And it's for the boards of the companies to, to survive. Now, uh, what that comes down to is you make commercial decisions and, and some of those are successful and some are not. And if the tide of affairs is running against you, as certainly happened to a number of the companies that we've seen the history here, for example, of, uh, say, Handy Page. You know, essentially, once you have, once you're not supported, you you go out of business. Beagle, you know, the government withdrew financial support, and that was an end to it. Um, one might say uh, that's a sad thing, but at the end of the day, the government is elected, makes decisions, and industry has to cope in the environment that it finds itself in. Uh, Mike Bruard, currently chairman of the Roadcraft Committee, uh, successor to, to Ron. I enjoyed your talk. It strikes me that um, you know the history of the aircraft um, uh, manufacturing is very much mirrored by the automotive, the shipbuilding, the railways, 
generation of companies, collapse of companies, uh, production being driven by um, uh, military uh, requirements, particularly the ship, the ship side. Could you see another industry developing in the same way as the um, um, aircraft business? I might suggest uh, remotely piloted vehicles. If you drew up the, num the number of companies involved in that activity, there's, there's loads of them. And also the big boys are getting into, into it as well. I just wonder whether you could foresee a similar sort of thing happening with unmanned aircraft. I think it's, it's hard to say. There is, a, there is a major drive towards unmanned aircraft, but there is still, and, and there, is, there is use of unmanned aircraft to do exactly what was done with the first military application of aircraft, which is to carry out reconnaissance. And um, one could also imagine unmanned aircraft moving into um, stopping people carrying out reconnaissance so that essentially you could see a recycling of the same trends but it is rather rather dependent on factors continuing for example continued or, or developing technical maturity in the industry and also a continued um, desire to fight wars without losing any any without sustaining any casualties now I think that it's possible that there will be a drive which sees increased use of unmanned vehicles and increased roles for those unmanned vehicles. But I think it will be driven by the latter factor, the desire to, to not put human beings into danger. And I'm not sure how whether the industry is mature enough. It may have to go through that period of loss rates and difficulty early on before it gets to a sustainable um, industrial base, if you like. So you could you could imagine it, but the the drivers may not be there continuously enough to make it happen. And the aircraft industry, had there not been a Second World War, it is rather questionable as to whether many of what exists, much of what exists even today, would would still exist. There's two phases of sustained global warfare required to to get the industry to technical maturity and then to reinvigorate it at a stage when it might not have, it, it, we may all have been building light aircraft because that would have been what was selling without the Second World War coming along and large-scale rearmament taking place. So I think it's, it's dangerous to predict the future and very difficult to, to imagine whether there would be combinations of circumstances that would lead you down that path. But there are certainly some similarities. I think you could also say, couldn't you, Ron, that uh, uh, following the two, the two great stages of expansion in the two wars, there was, of course, the, the Cold War period, which yes. was very productive in bringing on technology generally and I, I think equipping us for the jet civil age. Really. And I think we've heard in this lecture theatre as well about the fact that the German advances in the Second World War, which, which were migrated across the industry... And then because there was high tension because of the Cold War, we did produce that string of immensely capable aeroplanes in the, in, from the late, not from 1949 through to 1954, say. And, um, you know, that was again driven by very, uh, not war, but by very high tension. And in fact, Cold War, which did act almost as if it was a hot war because it was a sustained period of, uh, of threat, really. And it kept the research funded, of course, as well. There was a, somebody over here, I think. Harry Fraser Mitchell. 
Let me echo your words, Mr. Chairman, a remarkable review of the industry. Um, however, I did detect a small hole, and that was the development of large aircraft, which, of course, was Hanley Page, 1916 onwards. And the interesting thing about that was that HP always used to say, and I expect he said in the First World War, he certainly said it in the Second, what do we do when peace comes? And uh, his answer in the First World War was obviously to carry on building those airplanes, convert them into bombers, converted bombers into passenger aircraft, not very good ones, rather dangerous in fact, but uh, they worked after a fashion. And he went on to sort of do the first, I think, post-war proper, shall we say, civil airliners, uh, which really formed the basis of, well, I think, something like 90% of the seats for Imperial Airways, and of course they're all taken over. He formed his own airline, in fact, Hanley Page Transport Limited, and flew scheduled services to Brussels, Rotterdam, Paris, and also, would you believe, um, he he had one or two inclusive tours, which I, I think were not terribly popular. However, he was always uh, somebody who felt that, you know, mass, uh, mass, pass uh, mass transport of passengers by air was the thing to to, to do, provided they flew in his airplanes, of course, which they didn't always. In fact, they did very seldom. But the other interesting about the thing about that was in the lean post-war years, i.e. between World War One and Two, he didn't build that many airplanes. He built lots of prototypes. But he depended on the slot patents. And he got huge revenues from all sorts of governments, USA, British governments, and so on, 19, I think it was 1926 that the air ministry said that all RAF airplanes had to be equipped by handy page automatic slots, for example. And he got huge revenues, and that's what kept his company going, not aeroplanes. And it wasn't until the, the 30s that he sort of brought in things like um, HP-42, which he only made eight of. It didn't make any money on it. But uh, some Hayfords and things like this, and then went into... Um, you know, more, more military. He was always a military man, really. Uh, and, but the interesting thing was that he kept going, not by building aeroplanes, but by cashing in on research that he had done in 1920. It's quite incredible, really, how much money he made from it. He also had a lot to do with uh, the aircraft disposal company. I think he made a fair bit of money on that. Uh, he was a far-seeing man. Uh, and then, uh, you know, he, he went into the Halifax and so on. And eventually, in 1970, as you relate, he, he went bust because of, uh, or the company went bust uh, because of withdrawal of, uh, of government support. Something which I find today still very difficult, 30 years after, to talk about, uh, without at least my blood pressure going up. But, uh, uh, it's, it's an interesting area, I think, which maybe you didn't have time to cover. Uh, which I think is uh, symptomatic of uh, the way that we sort of tend to approach this business as a sort of rather ad hoc, uh, ad hoc way of doing it. Uh, I wonder if you. Agree. I, I think that's an interesting, as an interesting insight on the on the ability of Handy Page to survive through that difficult period. And although I didn't specifically address it, I did mention that there was that the use of aircraft for air transport was one of the features that didn't arrive during, this, during the First World War. 
and it would actually be the subject of another, you know, an interesting discussion in its own right as to how the transport aircraft business has evolved and developed in the same way. Uh, I, I suppose I have to plead that there's only so much one can cover in an hour's talk, and uh, I was trying to look at what drove the shape of the industry. I think one thing that one can uh, say from the Handley Page story that uh, Harry has just outlined is that, uh, in a sense, the, his uh, ability to sell the slot yes. was the first early signs of the globalization thing that you're talking about. You know, we're on all the projects, or nearly all of them. Um, we can sell something. We don't build the whole airplane, perhaps, but we can contribute something and stay in business by it. I think as well a number of the aircraft companies had their own associated engine activity yes, as well as yes. so obviously whilst there was Rolls-Royce and Napier and so on you also had Blackburn and de Havilland and so on uh, yes, which obviously yes, was helping to, yes. to, again that represented one feature of being able to get on most projects was sure. if you could get engines or propellers or yes. other components from yes. your own source yes Peter Hearn wanted to say something I think yes <coughs> thanks Mike. Peter Hearn uh, retired now thank God and uh, I wanted to make a comment and a couple of plugs. The comment really is this, on the question of collaborative programs. I've been involved, I think, in all the collaborative programs which you put up on the, uh, on the, on the board. And only two of them have I felt were being run in a sensible manner. One was the Jaguar and one was the Concorde. And each of those, we had a technical partner who was a competent equal and with whom, although you had to watch him on certain points, he was sometimes a bit dishonest, we managed to avoid duplication in the program and come up with a successful product at the end. Let's take, move on to the tornado. Uh, we've managed to produce an aeroplane which is slower and has a shorter range than the Buccaneer which it replaces and is certainly more expensive. That can't be a very sensible outcome. Let's look at Eurofighter, where the cost has gone to astronomical figures because the delays of trying to get four partners to march in lockstep are such that the, people, the more efficient partners are held back and everybody has to spend money to pay for the delays and the less efficient ones. Uh, you probably you may or may not know there was a paper done by a former AD of um, Director of well, Dispeter, uh, Director of Technical Plans and Cost Analysis, John Harrison, that pointed out that building a British Eurofighter, and this is before the Eurofighter program as, as was just starting, would probably be no more than 10% ex more expensive than doing it uh, in a collaborative program. And that, was fail and that was not taking account of the risks and delays which have ultimately occurred. It certainly would have been cheaper if we'd gone ahead on the EAP, which we built and flew at Wharton, has been sitting in a newspaper, in a new museum now, as I had it, one of my that's the newspapers did for about the last ten years. I mean, that, the problem that we have in collaborative programs is the way they're done at the moment. It's not the concept. I agree with you. Globalization is here. Done a lot of work in the American industry, supplied equipment to them. But the the way in which we do these things has really got to be radically overhauled. The moment I liken it to uh, Alice through the Looking Glass, it's doing the right, doing the right thing for entirely the wrong in entirely the wrong way and you really have to change things uh, if we are going to be successful I mean if we look at JSF 
I'm very concerned about the exchange of technology issues in JSF, which will make certain that we are right at the back, sucking on the, on the back teat, and not getting the full interchange and benefits which we ought to be getting in this country. Just two plugs. Uh, it's my uh, turn next in the spectrum, <laughs> I'm afraid. I would, I would say, if I may, that I, I have in my career worked on two, three, four, and five nation collaborative projects. But sat where I am, employed by who I am, it's inappropriate for me to comment. As I, said, I'm, as I said, I'm retired, thank goodness. Two, two, two plugs, but on the, the post-war civil airliners, undoubtedly we had major problems due to the insularity of the British industry and the insularity of people on the Brabazon Committee, that matter, who failed to recognize what sort of things you needed in civil airliners. And that was compounded by the fact we had a totally inadequate civil aircraft industry, engine industry in this country. We failed, in my mind, to a large extent, and I was in BOC at the time, because we didn't have any decent 2,000, 2,500 horsepower engines which would enable us to build aircraft the right size. I, I think so it's... Can I, I'll just be there while now, shut up. No. And, the, and the other point I was, I was going to say is on, on RPBs, I managed to instigate a uh, scholarship program with the British Gliding Association and... Uh, the and BAE systems with a view to encouraging university students in aeronautical engineering to take up gliding and to participate in the technical type of developments that the German Ackerfleet universities do in the hope that from there will grow a generation of people who can design aircraft that fly at the Reynolds numbers of gliders which are in fact UAVs. Very good. Thank you Peter. I think it is certainly striking that after the war, the Brabazon Committee failed to anticipate that air transport was going to become a preferred means of travel for the masses when it was previously positioned as rather more expensive than going on transatlantic liners, if you like. It was the top end of the market. And so the specifications that were derived for the transport aircraft we're typically looking at 20 to 40 passengers for aircraft which in service, even though they started quite small, did subsequently get up towards, I think, I don't know quite where the Viscount ended up, as around 80 perhaps, and the Comet ended up at around 100. But the, they did get larger, but they, the, the, the appreciation that aviation was going to become the preferred means of transport for the mass population rather than the province of the extremely well-heeled was seems to be an underlying failure of the uh, of the Brabazon committee's view of 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 commercial aircraft post 1945 now i think there was uh, one over here um john king i was intrigued by your lists of people who helped manufacture in the first and second wars uh, did I miss something I didn't see the railway company's detail there was that deliberate uh, it was nothing something? deliberate there was, there was activity by the railway companies um, indeed as I recall Hamden's, Hamden repairs by the London Midland Scottish Company in Derby, Derby yes and so, certainly also in, in Scotland there was some Spitfire repair work, but I was pr predominantly looking at the actual aircraft construction 
rather than solely repair organisations. And the railway companies, unlike the London Passenger Transport Group, who, do, who, who did combine into the London Aircraft Production Group, the railway companies per se were not actually assembling complete aircraft. So that's the distinction, really, which causes that to be less less reflected. So it's slightly outside the scope of the area that I was I was looking at. Yes, my name is Brian Porch. I was part of the British Aerospace team at Hatfield back in '93 when it was closed. In managing that reduction, one of the issues that we had to deal with that added to the gloom of the time was the local Hatfield paper that speculated that if the early comet had been designed with round windows rather than square, Hatfield rather than Seattle would be the centre of jet aircraft production, civil jet aircraft production. How much truth do you think there is in that statement? Well, I'm, I'm not an expert. I, I have um, I've read a book called The Comet Riddle, which was written from a more Ministry of Supply view. And they do point out there that there were a number of other issues associated with the, with the design as well as the pressure cabin failures. But I think those were issues that would have been solved in service. The problem with a, with a fundamental airworthiness structural failure where the aircraft had a number of clearly complete structural failures and then was put back into service and had more. It's this inability to sustain more than a certain number of headlines and whether or not you could say that's down to the actual design, the stressing policies, and that's been hotly debated in, in, in the media. And really, as, I'm, as I don't profess to be expert in the subject, all I can say is, who knows? It, it, the fact is that the circumstances conspired against it and um, it's... Yes, it is gloomy to contemplate on where one might, where where things might have gone. But uh, as I say, it's the business of the business to eventually cope with the environment in which it finds itself. And a number of the alloys, for example, that were used in the industry immediately after the war showed great promise, but proved to be fatigue conscious. And that, so there's, that's another aspect of the problem. It wasn't a very helpful comment at the time. <laughs> no, I can imagine. Any more? Yes, Fred Fred Ballam wants to contribute. Fred, Fred Ballam, uh, ex-Westland, more or less. Um, one thing you haven't covered in, in any sort of depth, although you did allude to it just now, is the fact that all of these things that fly have to be pushed through the air by some means. Uh, there has to be a parallel in the engine industry. Is there any thought on, on eventually covering that? It's a very, it's an interesting topic, and it's a topic that um, I, it's kind of, it's a little daunting when you look at the scale of research required to put these things together. I certainly would find it an interesting challenge to go to understand how the changes that have taken place in the aircraft industry are both fed from and uh, derived from engine cha engine technology, and also how the engine industrial base has been influenced by because clearly the factors that we see here that influence the shape of the aircraft industry are driving one of the customers for the engine industry and clearly the products that the engine industry is generating is driving the technical 
environment for the aircraft industry as well. So the two are, are clearly interlinked. And uh, I, at this stage, I have one more book to write of this series, and I find it daunting to contemplate. Nevertheless, um, you know, that, that is certainly a very, very interesting topic, but I'm, I'm not sure. It would take me a while to develop the, the, the necessary insight to be able to put the pieces together in a proper context. That, that's a, it's a significant piece of work for somebody to do, and I think a very interesting piece of work. We'll have to keep the pressure up on Ron. Fred, you, you and I. Uh, there was another one. Oh, sorry, over there. I think you've been waiting longer. Barry, I'm very grateful to you for doing all this exercise. I'm sure it's, it's, it's excellent for your health. Uh, Philip Riley, uh, Farnborough Branch. Glad to see we get a bit of publicity up there at the moment. I think that's Farnborough. Um, the decision to um, uh, create British Aerospace in 1977 was a, a political decision, essentially, and that, as you noted, um, dictated the future shape of the industry in this country. Um, and at that time, a number of other decisions were taken, which again were partly politically motivated. I mean, the, uh, the decision not to include Westland, for example, I think the unions lobbied very strongly to uh, keep Westland out. And Tony Benn, I think, was the minister at the time, so he tended to listen. Um, the debate between the 146 and the 111, again, was partly political. Um, and there were other things. The re-entry into Airbus was, again, probably um, dictated partly by European considerations. Um, I, I just wondered if you have a view as to whether, um, had the industry really let market forces dictate its future, w whether the, there would be a stronger outcome, whether we have a better industry now, or whether um, if those political decisions, uh, in other words, if those political decisions hadn't been taken, where do you think we would be now um, rather than where we are now? So um, that type of hypothetical question is very interesting. It would be it would be interesting to sit down and, and say, okay, let's imagine what the chain of events would be. And I think you'd have to do that. And um, it may be dependent on the development on military and civil side. You might have seen alignment with America, for example, um, because clearly, as you say, in terms of Airbus and Europe, collaboration in that period, and it was a period when I was uh, involved in in European helicopter collaborative projects um, post, well, from 1980 onwards. And uh, clearly, uh, at that stage, Europe was the partner of choice of the day, and participation within collaborative programs was dictated by governments. Governments said which programs you wanted to be in and which companies were going to join together to carry out the work. And if you had relieved all of that from political um, influence, of course you'd have to postulate the removal of political influence from the other nations who were equally being political about deciding, for example, that France and Germany were going to collaborate on certain projects. So it's, a, it's really very difficult to speculate. Um, my guess is that there would, would have been migration towards collaboration with America because that's where the big market is and that's where a lot of the technology was coming from and I think it would have been an inevitable market driver. The, the separation between Europe and America, if you go to a purely market and technology view and you think I'm going to develop the best aircraft or helicopter or system of the day, would be based upon where the technical and commercial strength lies. And so I think you would have got into the kind of globalization, but probably American-dominated, um, earlier perhaps.
Oh, that's a fairly logic. That's the only logic which I can provide to the. I think it's interesting to observe uh, that uh, in the civil engine business, of course, that's the way things have largely gone. Rolls Royce made a huge effort, um, and indeed ended up in disaster at one stage, to get into the big, the big time civil. And of course, the helicopter industry developed in this country to a fair extent, um, under the beneficial influence of taking licenses to build Sikorsky helicopters. Uh, there is a very good book in the Frank Cass series, the ones with the pale blue dust jackets, which um, deals with the, the British helicopter industry. Uh, I'm not sure whether those from Augusta Westland who are present would uh, would fully support this, but um, he made the point that uh, uh, starting with the various companies that were working on helicopters after the war, which, which Ron mentioned, um, it was Westland who eventually became dominant, largely, uh, arguably, that uh, because they they got going on a production base, uh, rather than all the clever designs and research-supported things, they, they, they concentrated perhaps more on establishing a production line of license-build machines, which enabled them to mm. get stronger, which I think is an interesting point in this regard. I don't know whether Alan Vincent would agree with that. Would you, Alan? From that... Um... You have to say, you know, the market forces and politics got into the equation with the so-called Westland affair. And yes, yes, quite. When we were at, up to that point, um, as you say, building license-build license helicopters, um, we were looking to Europe. Sikorsky's took an interest in, in Westlands. But where are we now? <laughs> yes. West or Augusta Westlands is jointly owned between uh, Finn Mechanica and, and and GKN. So yes. you know the yes, I was just referring to the stage of establishing themselves yeah. as the major market British forces. Uh, perhaps have brought it back into a European collaboration. Yes, yes, indeed. Something that just just struck me listening to the, the last question. Um, and thinking about what what one was saying before that the, the structure of industry in the 1940s that you had. You had companies which were doing design and development and companies which were doing manufacturing. Well, that was happening on a national scale. We're now in a situation where we have a global industry in which you have some people who are prime contractors who are doing research and development, and then you have a second tier of people who are doing manufacturing. Now, the, the question comes, if the point of view is the continuity of industry, do you need to be involved in the top tier to, make, to actually make money? I think it's interesting that there's been also there has been globalization and, and contraction in the um, in the second tier suppliers. So if you look at Smith's Aerospace, for example, you will see it's now you know what used to be Bolton Paul, Doughty Bolton Paul, and so on. Now Smith's, and as I understand, headquartered in the U.S. So you've got uh, um, a similar similar factors are at play across the whole industry. But I think you're quite right. There is one important element. That, that helps people who are doing production as opposed to design and original research and development, and that is that much of the risk 
lies elsewhere. And um, they do obviously have to compete on, on the usual price performance delivery and so on. But in many instances, if you, if you end up constructing components, you are not in the firing line in quite the same way. Um, Richard, Richard Bateson, um, you uh, had one of the last slides, um, like a family tree of uh, companies. You mentioned 50 or so. Um, how many of those uh, companies, which obviously all had individual uh, records and so on, how many of them had archives and how many of those archives survive in any substantial uh, proportion today? It's... Um it's unusual for companies that have lasted a long time to really have very well-developed archives. Westland has a particularly good archive. Blackburn, now rough British Aerospace, has a good has a good archive. Across the others, I've written letters to companies who, some of whom would say, we might have built aeroplanes once, if you like. Um, others, um, G.J. Weir, for example, will go to some effort in the Weir, Weir Group PLC to go and find some material related to aircraft production in the First World War, which is where that, that photograph came from. I would say most of them don't maintain large archives because they've moved on in terms of their business, and particularly the contractors. If you were um, Fairfield Engineering building ships, and then you built aircraft during the First World War, and then you returned to building ships, and then you became upper Clyde shipbuilders and governor, and then part of, um, part of, uh, I guess, um, the GC Marconi Empire, and then into BAE Systems. It's perhaps not unreasonable that when you ask them if they've got any records about aircraft construction during the First World War, <laughs> they go, huh? <laughs> so I would say that there is... The level of, of archive material is very limited, but there are some. I mean, companies like um, Roby & Co. and um, some of the East Anglian contractors have lodged archives with, with some of the uh, regional universities and so on. So it's very patchy, and generally you're lucky if you find if you find anything significant. I, because of the breadth of the subject, it's also difficult to, to really go and investigate the existence of archives across that breadth. So my, um, even though what I've presented is, is pretty comprehensive compared with most reviews of the industry, I can't pretend that I've gone down every rabbit hole to try to, try to find out what is exactly there for every case. To some extent, the material I present and the illustrative material that goes with it is based on that which you can find if you look in the not-too-difficult places. So the example that I gave of Mr. Martin buying or, you know, 42 million yards of linen, it would be very nice to go and do the research to find out what he did with it. But I haven't done it. <laughs> Equally, you can go to every local newspaper office across the country and try and find something about the local industry, and you may well find things there that would be, as yet, completely unknown. There's a PhD, you know, in that 42 million yards <laughs> of linen. <laughs> Peter. A couple of points quickly. The first one was about uh, Westlands and uh, buying up uh, or getting all the helicopter industry. It's interesting that my predecessor in uh, BEA was George Hislop, who was later a president of the society. And shortly after he moved to Ferries, when Ferries were pretty were doing quite well with a lot of gannets going off the line and they were building the FD1 and they felt the rotodyne was going to work, which was a big mistake. Uh, and George told me that when uh, later, when Westlands actually took over the ferries and so forth, they'd actually thought of buying Westlands in 1954, 
and had dismissed the idea because they didn't think it was a very serious company at the time. <laughs> it just shows that market forces don't always work out that. The other one was about the Comet. Uh, in 19, before the Comet disasters, we were looking very closely at Comet 3s and Comet Conway Comets and so forth. And I have to say that none of those compared as favorably as did the the Boeing, the early Boeing 767, the 367 airplane. And one of the main reasons being the point I made at the, uh, when uh, David Newman gave his lecture is that de Havilland's just did not look at the flap system on the airplane. It had such a crude flap system. The takeoff and climb performance really limited its all-up weight. Uh, the real disaster was the shenanigans in VOAC, which led to the cancellation of the Vickers 1000. Then we might have had, not Seattle, but certainly... Uh, a quite a sizable civil jet business in this country still going, and that was the thing that really screwed us. Thank you, Peter. There was another case over there. Uh, Andrew Simpson, um, private uh, enthusiast, just filling in a very small hole on the archives corner. But speaking as a member of the Bolton Paul Association back in Wolverhampton, the um, remaining archives of the Bolton Paul uh, Group and Doughty BPs, they were passed to the Bolton Paul Association yes. within the last ten years and now fill one fairly small room in the Bolton Paul um, Heritage Exhibition Centre at the old Bolton Paul factory in Wobasson Road, Wolverhampton. Um, before it was passed to the group, there was one unlocked room full of a ever-dwindling section collection of flights, which had disappeared by the week almost, apparently, and uh, collections of photographs and APs and the like, which now been passed on to the association have been steadily catalogued by the honorary curator, Alec Brew. And he also contacted Bolton and Paul at Norwich before they moved out from the old Riverside Works and acquired a little bit from them. So anyone I, passing through Wolverhampton on a Friday afternoon can uh, make an appointment to go and see what, what does survive of that archive. I think that that's very much the credit of Bolton Paul and, and I'm aware of the Bolton Paul Association collection and there are groups of people around trying to, to maintain that. And I think if the company engages, I mean the, the, the material at Brough is really excellent. It's maintained by retirees, but the company is providing the building and obviously facilitates that. So that there is, uh, in that particular model, there's been a good mix between the interest of the company and the interest of those that would like to see its heritage preserved, and long may it be so. I have to say I've found Marshall of Cambridge extremely helpful, for example. They have also uh, a photographic archive, and when I asked their PR uh, person for assistance. She was extremely helpful and, and I asked for some comments on the content of, my, of a manuscript and she said I can think of no one better than Sir Arthur and Sir Arthur produced eight pages of information so I think uh, you know there are certainly people out there who care about their heritage. Perhaps I could add also that uh, another company which is uh, doing well, has done well in this area is Rolls-Royce of course. Uh, Rolls-Royce Heritage Trust very well known um, largely operated by retirees and a particular feature of that operation is that they've managed to produce a whole series of extremely informative yes. historical books on selected topics written by people who were involved at the time. So it can be done and indeed like uh, the other case you mentioned Ron that company has recognised that uh, there's some value in it commercially yes. you know it helps the image. Um, I think we're getting near to the time when we ought to wrap up, but so just a couple more points and perhaps people who haven't spoken before. Yes, sir. 
my name is uh, Tristan Crawford from the Aerospace Innovation and Growth Team. Um, as a young person entering the industry, um, it's obviously fairly clear that the story of the, of, the, of the British aircraft industry is tinged with a certain amount of sadness. Um, what message would you have for young people entering the industry in terms of perhaps the strengths the industry has had in the past and how those strengths might be uh, considered to be carried forward into the future in terms of continuing the, uh, the success of British, British aircraft so far? Well, I, um, I'm an aviation enthusiast from my youth. I never particularly expected to learn to fly, let alone own aeroplanes and so on. However, I did pursue my interest to be an aeronautical engineer and to do research subsequently and entered the helicopter industry and then migrated across to uh, British Aerospace. I think for anybody with an inquiring mind, aerospace represents the solution of challenging problems from the very top of the system to the very bottom of the system. It uh, is paced by technology in the physical sense and by understanding in the analytical sense. So you are faced with an enormous range of challenging problems. So what one, if you like, uh, I find the satisfaction derives from the ability to be working in an industry which is solving very difficult problems in innovative ways. And my interest in aviation is not impaired by the fact that the company doesn't build that many aeroplanes because the work is about solving problems and those problems are technically challenging and at any particular point in time the characteristics and performance of the solutions that are derived represent the amalgam of not necessarily the very peak of technology of the day, but they are a selective mix of technology that balance risk and cost against capability. And that's a really challenging environment for anybody to work in. And I think that the, the attraction of aerospace as a career derives from the challenges that it represents. The fact there are some fantastic products out there, there are things that people are attached to in a, in a kind of heartfelt sense, um, reflects the endeavours of other people in the industry generating those products at the time when they were produced. I can take great satisfaction from, from, for example, flying a tiger moss. It isn't what you would design in the industry today, but it's still a product that has a lot of, um, a lot of interest and it has a certain cachet attached to it. And I think it's true in any endeavour where you are working at the limits of and the boundaries of knowledge and technology that you'll find great satisfaction within the industry. It doesn't have to be aeroplanes for that. And it doesn't have to be... If you actually look at the challenges represented by some of the subsystem components, they are just as extraordinary. So it's a question of find your challenges where your interest lies and pursue mm. that. You have to really, as you said in your conclusions, you have to recognise, I think, that it is now a global industry so you have to be ready to contribute in some area it's not the same as designing the whole to moth or whatever it's it's but one aspect of this i think which i would offer uh, support everything that ron has said I, I just offer the additional point that um although we have had all sorts of tribulations um in the development of aerospace in this country one can list all sorts of um, unfortunate decisions and 
technical errors, financial errors, all sorts of things, governmental things going wrong. Nonetheless, we are at this stage in a position where we are a very significant force in global aviation design and manufacture. Um, this is not just the aeroplane. We have a very good, very strong equipment industry. We have an excellent engine industry. So there is a large spread of technology for young Brits to work on, isn't yeah. there? Uh, sorry, I went on. There's one more question. Yes, one more question. Thank you. Daryl Penhow from Short Brothers Commemoration Society. Uh, Dr. Smith, um, the education system for the young people today, does it fill you with uh, hope or despair? Well, I, I suppose I could declare an interest that having no children, I'm not as well placed to comment on that as, I, as some others may be. Um, I can judge by my, my nieces, for example. I have one niece who is just completing a university course at York University who seems to be a very bright and personable and capable individual. My other niece is a tornado backseat driver, F3s. So uh, I think there's, there's bright people will respond to the challenges that they face. I think there is more difficulty for those that are not bright because they don't seem to be challenged in a way which produces the best from them. And that's really what the education system should be doing is, uh, in my opinion, bringing out the best of anyone that's presented to it, no matter what their starting point. So I can't really answer the question, but there are an amazing number of bright people around, although perhaps that isn't the overall perception. It's a challenge. Thank you, Ron. Well, on that, on that note, I think we had better finish up. Um, I think we've heard a most excellent lecture this evening. It's, uh, it's touched on other things that have happened in this lecture theatre, um, over the years, uh, the name of Sebastian Ritchie has been mentioned by Ron, and uh, he lectured us largely on the content of his, his own research work on the history of the industry and the run-up to, to the war. Um, an excellent book, which is uh, heartily recommendable. We've had uh, an excellent lecture on the comet, uh, two or three years ago. Uh, we had Sir Peter Macefield, of course, on the Brabazon Committee. So I think there are a lot of linkages tonight with uh, things that have been the subject of uh, presentation and debate in this room. Um, but Ron, you have pulled it all together in a very, um, a very encompassing way. You've given us uh, the whole picture shall we say, in a sort of thumbnail sketch way, as it had to be for just one hour, but it really did impress me enormously, the way you did it. And it's clearly impressed our audience tonight and uh, fired them up to offer all sorts of questions and comments. So I would ask everybody to join me in uh, uh, congratulating Ron uh, most sincerely on this lecture. Thank you very much. And, and as, is, as, is our, as is our practice on these occasions, we do present a small memento 
to our lecturers. Um, it is, as is often uh, seen, it is in fact a little clock. But uh, there's no hint here that Ron was out of control with his timing. He was very, very close indeed. So here it is, a nice little clock which may help you to remember the occasion, Ron. Thank you very much. <laughs>